2: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Connecting changes everything.
2: AT&T. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a listener mail. This is Robert Lamb.
0: And this is Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, the day of the week that we read back some messages you've sent into the show account, which I always say at the end of the episode, I'll say at the beginning this time, it is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com if you ever want to get in touch. Maybe a little bit more accessible up here. Rob, did did you and Seth do some kind of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles related uh, uh, listener mail episode while I was out? Yes,
1: basically. We I, I pulled up two listener mails. Uh, one about Elden Ring and cauldrons. Oh, okay. Uh, are you? Have you played that game? Do you have any? Yeah, yeah, I have. Okay, yeah. so you're I'm familiar actually, with, with this cauldron
0: character? Uh, I think maybe. A l- I think I've come across him once. Okay. I'm uh, I'm I'm progressing very slowly in Elden Ring. I'm, uh, okay,
1: well, it's, I guess it's just as well that you missed that one because it had spoilers in it oh, okay. for Elden Ring. But yeah, we also talked about the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game, Shredder's Revenge. Uh, so that was pretty fun. Just a little uh, reminiscent about old Turtles games and Turtles movies and the uh, the cartoon a little bit.
0: Well, we got some feedback on that episode coming up later on, okay. but. First, I guess we should talk about document duplication, because we got this message from Ian, who has written in before to provide a lawyer's perspective on several issues. Always nice to have. And Ian had thoughts about uh, originals and copies. So, Rob, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right into this one. Go for it. Dear Rob and Joe... I was recently listening to your two-part episode about the history of duplicating documents, and I was struck by your discussion of the fact that in ancient times, the written record of an agreement or other legally significant proclamation would sometimes embody the legal rights and responsibilities associated with it, and that destroying the record would be tantamount to terminating those rights and responsibilities. Yeah, this was in the context of uh, of uh, practices in ancient Greece having to do with, like, uh, contracts and decrees by rulers and treaties and so forth, that there was a widespread assumption that in order to show that this document was no, no longer held true or was no longer in force, you would have to destroy all the copies of that document. Ian continues, You mentioned that in modern times we do not think of written records in this way, and for instance would not have to destroy an out-of-date employee handbook as a way of showing it was no longer in force. You're absolutely correct in most instances, but as an attorney I am well acquainted with one area where originals do carry the metaphysical embodiment of abstract concepts they represent, that is, the law – the law, particularly trial procedure, is filled with instances where originals have a level of importance that exceeds what society in general gives them. With wills, for example, the original truly embodies the wishes of the, uh, oh, I don't know this word, testator or testator? I'm going to say testator, uh, the person who made the will, to the extent that if the testator voluntarily destroys the original will, it does render that will null and void. And even if copies exist, they are of no effect. So while a scene in a movie with a character tearing up an IOU may not actually have any meaning, if they tear up a will, it most certainly does. More generally, there is a principle in courtroom procedure known as the best evidence rule, which requires that the original of a document, uh, or a video, or audio recording, etc., be presented rather than a copy— a copy is only allowed if the original has been lost, destroyed, or is otherwise unavailable. Even then, you're not technically admitting the copy as direct evidence in its own right. It's always the original that is legally relevant, and the copy is merely admitted as evidence of what the contents of the original were. <laughs> so, if, uh, so if you have a theft caught on security video and do not have access to the original video, you may present a copy not to prove that the accused committed the theft, theft, but to prove that the original video showed the accused committing the theft. It's definitely a case of legal hair-splitting, but as a practical matter, copies are typically treated as simply admissible, at least in my jurisdiction. But that is the technical legal theory underlying that sort of evidence, and I suspect it dates back to a time when copies of documents were uncommon or inexact. Yeah, th- this sounds like it would be based on a world where copies may introduce changes or errors as a as a regular matter of course rather than an era of uh, digital duplication. Ian goes on. Also tangentially related to the legal realm, if you ever get a speeding ticket, you may encounter a modern use of carbon paper. Many police still write their tickets on a stack of carbon paper which yields the original ticket and two copies. For us locally, the bottom or pink copy is given to the person who got the ticket, the middle or green copy goes to the court, and the original white copy goes to the local prosecutor. It has always seemed odd to me that the copy that is the hardest to read is the one given to the person. Accused of the traffic <laughs> violation, uh, and then finally, I'm going to summarize Ian's last point. But it's a, an interesting comparison between illuminated manuscripts, which we talked about in the uh, with relevance to the idea of facsimile. That sometimes copying a document is not only accurately capturing the code of its text, but literally capturing every element of the design of each page, such as with you know medieval manuscripts that might have illustrations or beautiful calligraphy or something like that. And Ian compares this to the novel House of Leaves, uh, which I, I think is a great point of comparison because that's a novel that is not just the code of its text, but it is how each individual page appears because it's a, a lot, many parts of that novel are sort of uh, weird sort of artifacts or imagery that uh, they're like documents as documents, not documents as just the text of the document.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of a one of a kind book. Uh, quite a rewarding experience, but yeah, difficult to compare to most other books.
0: I think you might be able to compare it to like William Blake, you know, the, mm-hmm. the originals where the poems are associated with, with paintings or illustrations. There's kind of an appearance of the page that adds to the value of the text.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of these which, yeah, you do have to read it in, in that original format. Uh, you can't. I, I can't imagine reading it on a in an ebook format or an audio book format. And certainly, uh, there have been a lot of discussions about any kind of uh, film or TV adaptation. Though apparently, one was. Sort of in the works, not too long ago, but it, I don't think it went anywhere.
0: I don't know how that would work. That doesn't. <laughs> I think it seems it, unadaptable.
1: I think if memory serves, like the the principle was, this is this cannot be a complete adaptation. It has to be something that is kind of auxiliary to it. Mm. Uh, so sort of like a continuation of the House of Leaves project, um, as opposed to a a, a film version offset
0: project. You know. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, Ian says, thank you, as always, for your entertaining, enlightening podcast. I'll leave you with one final thought about modern infinite copying and distribution. If you mark every email as important, then none of them are. Oh, what Wise words, Ian. <laughs> I yes. agree. Um. So, yeah, a couple comments on that. Number one, I have in my life received a speeding ticket that was written on carbon paper. And I the copy I got, I could not tell you what it said. It was not text. It was just squiggles. Mm. And I, I, I always wondered that if I'd had the resources at the time to, like, take it to court and fight it out, uh, I wonder if the fact that the copy I had was completely illegible would have been able to get me out of that ticket. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to we we'll have to ask for more more legal insight from listeners on that one. But yeah, this was uh I guess I was a teenager at the time and I got it in a place different from where I lived, so it just mm-hmm. wasn't you know, oh, nothing yeah, yeah, I could do really. I just had to pay it.
1: All right, this one comes to us from Laney. Hey, Rob and Joe, my name is Lainey, and I'm from Cutoff, Louisiana, and you can say it on air. <laughs> I wanted to write into to you about the facsimile episodes. Even on the first episode, I kept waiting for y'all to talk about carbon copies. I had to laugh when Joe talked about carbon copies in the 21st century because I still use them today. I'm a middle school teacher, and our behavior consequences sheets are on carbon copy. Our behavior infractions fall into three categories, recess detention minor infractions and major infractions major infractions are done completely on the computer but our recess detention forms and minor uh, infraction forms are on carbon copy paper handouts for recess detentions and minor infractions the original copy is for the students to bring home and have the parents sign the first carbon copy goes to the teacher who writes the infraction ticket uh, to keep for their records and the second carbon copy goes to the disciplinarian at school still using them in 2022 and i don't see them going away soon Also, I remember when I realized the CC on email stood for carbon copy, mind blown, mind blown emoji. Thanks for the incredible work you do,
0: Lani from Louisiana. I thought this email uh, was either a very interesting coincidence or somehow indicative of something in the zeitgeist that uh, two major remaining uses for carbon paper that have been mentioned by listeners have to do with punishment, speeding tickets, and disciplinary records. (laughs) Also interesting that in the school, the offender gets the original copy, or at least their parents do. And in the speeding ticket, the offender gets the worst, least, uh, least, (laughs) uh, what's the adjective uh, version of fidelity? The least, uh, uh, the least good copy. (laughs) Have you you ever gotten carbon paper from a school, or is is that not a thing here?
1: Ooh, I'm trying to remember the last time I received a carbon, a lot of times, you know, you get carbon copy on stuff, and it's, um it's not important it's yeah. something that's just almost instantly thrown away um so i'm not sure if they're still using it in terms of like place, places i've been going and like the local school i don't know all right uh, you ready to
0: move on to some responses to cauldrons oh yeah cauldrons it's
1: the, it's the flavor of the month
0: let's do it Okay. uh, We got a cool message from Michaela. Uh, I'm going to summarize and and paraphrase a few parts of it. So Michaela begins by saying some nice things about the show and by recommending we check out an email newsletter called Dracula Daily, which uh, is an interesting concept. Basically, from what I can tell, it's that... Since Dracula is an epistolary novel, meaning you know it's made up of fictional letters, diary entries, newspaper articles, and so forth, which all have a date attached to them, you can actually serve up the novel along its own timeline. So, hmm. subscribers to Dracula Daily apparently uh, receive the individual parts of the novel on the dates of the year that those parts are written or published within the fictional timeline. I, I like that idea. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting idea. But finally, Michaela had something to add about our discussion of stone soup. Uh, so to briefly refresh on the concept of the, the stone soup. The stone soup tale. Uh, you know, the story is that, like, someone in the story, maybe a soldier or a traveler or a beggar, it's somebody crafty, mm-hmm. comes into a town and they have no food of their own, but they bring a pot and they put some water in it and they put a stone in the pot and they start to boil it. And then locals come around asking, Hey, what are you doing there? And they say, Well, I'm, I'm making some stone soup. It's it's going to be delicious, but, you know, I need a little bit of garnish, right? There's one ingredient I don't have. And uh, they say, Would you happen to have an onion that would really make the stone soup perfect? And then I'll share it with you. And the person says, well, sure, I'll contribute one onion. And by that same uh, uh, strategy, they can get in some carrots and some garlic and some herbs and some seasoning, some salt and pepper and some meats and stuff. uh, With each person thinking, well, I'm just contributing a little tiny bit. And then I get some of this delicious soup. And by the end, you have an actual soup that's full of nutrition and flavor that was built with no starting ingredients. So I think the story is mostly uh, supposed to be a parable about uh, uh, resourcefulness and sharing and and communal activities and stuff. But uh, Michaela contributes a a sort of literal interpretation of the story. Uh, She says, I don't remember where I heard this, but there was a version of the story where the stone itself actually added flavor to the stone soup. Uh, The story was that it was still a ruse, but the stone carried some flavors from previous soups it had been in. Perhaps the stones used back then also contributed to the flavor of the soups they were used in. Not just if they had been used in a soup before, but from minerals that would leach out, adding to the overall nutrition via small doses of iron, calcium, or salt, and the like. I don't know how scientifically viable this is at all, but it makes some sense in my head. Well, Michaela, I looked this up, and sure enough... I found several accounts of people actually claiming to have used or to have known people who use stones in soup— For different reasons, such as supposedly adding flavor or nutrition. And again, like you, I can't vouch for this actually working to add much flavor or nutrition, but that was the reasoning. And it seems like this was a practice in some depression era American cooking, like with the idea that, yeah, if you had a a stone that was used in a pot that cooked previous soup, you put that stone in the next soup pot, it's like a way of adding extra flavor. It just, you know, brings it from the last pot. But Michaela also had some comments on our discussion of the earliest uh, cooking pots, uh, those Jomon ceramic cooking pots, having round bottoms rather than flat ones. So some of the earliest ceramic cooking vessels were actually things that wouldn't stand up on their own. They either probably had to be suspended over a fire or or held in some kind of holding uh, frame or something. So uh, Michaela says, spherical earthen pots could have a few advantages off the top of my head. Being that a sphere has the greatest volume to surface area ratio, it could proportionally hold more than a cylindrical pot, and it would retain heat for longer. I can also imagine if you're putting stones in it to heat it up, having a spherical shape would mean the rocks would fall to the same central point, less fishing around for them. Ah, that that last idea that, that's interesting. Hmm. Anyway, Michaela says, "Feel free to read this on listener mail. Uh, edit out whatever to make it fit. I would be delighted, and it would make my like decade. I would love to see you guys if you come to the Twin Cities. Uh, well, if we ever if we're ever on tour, we will certainly announce it ahead of time. So yeah, if if we make it up that way, you can be there."
1: I can't help but think back to the stone soup thing, though, and think, well, you could also have certainly some magical thinking related to the uh, to the idea that well, this stone was once in a really good soup. If this yeah. stone were to be in your soup, uh, then surely yours would be as delicious. Uh, in in the same way that you know we've talked about this on the show before, like ideas of say, uh, you know, treating a weapon to to cure the wound, sort of
0: a, a situation. Exactly, uh, and it also makes me think it could be a sort of magical version of the idea of the infinite broth. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you've heard of, you know, there are, places that'll just keep the same pot of soup or stew or broth bubbling for maybe years at a time. And you'd be constantly taking parts of it out to eat, but also adding to the same pot. And, uh, and like there, I think there are restaurants that do this. Uh, I can't remember where I've read about this happening. I think, I think this might be a sort of Eastern phenomenon, but you just keep the same pot going. And, uh, and I think the idea is it just continually develops more and more complex flavor over the years.
1: Well, re- this reminds me, though, of some of the, um, uh, like the Irish uh, and or Welsh myths we were looking at and talking about the cauldron as, as a source of infinite uh, goodness. Uh, perhaps uh, that has
0: some connections to this as well.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com. All right, let's uh, go to another one here. This one comes to us from Matt. Uh, good day, fellas. Really enjoyed the series on cauldrons. It was great to hear so many insights about the significance of such objects to Gaelic and Bretonic cultures, as well as many others mentioned. Discussions of cauldron-esque cups and the communal nature of cauldrons reminded me of the Gaelic, and Gaelic warning, uh, uh, I may (laughs) pronounce this uh, wrong, uh, Cuach, also commonly known as Quach, which I think is a Scots version of the older Gaelic name. A, 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 a kuach is a sort of ceremonial drinking vessel used for special occasions. I've always pronounced it like quake, uh, but I'm a full-blooded Canadian. So I leave it to our <laughs> Scottish and Irish cousins to clarify. So quake, uh, kuach, quach, quake. Um, uh, I'm not, not sure where to land on this one. But not uh,
0: quato. <laughs>
1: not quato. <laughs> anyway, my friends and I have employed the... We'll go with quake, since this is in in his voice, uh, to imbibe in a wee drum uh, during Robert Burns' night suppers, before COVID anyway, I believe they are also used as part of wedding ceremonies. Despite getting kilted up for my own betrothal, though, my wife and I did not share a drink from a quake at our own ceremony. However, I have heard of others doing so. I thought it was an interesting example, if not just an extension, of the discussion around the role of cauldron-like vessels in community relationships, feasting, etc. I imagine the quake was an object for everyday use back in the day, but additionally would take on a ceremonial role during events or cultural formalities, uh, such as when two clan chieftains meet or when welcoming a stranger seeking shelter. I don't have much direct knowledge myself. It just seems logical given the nature of older clan-based societies where hospitality played such a critical role in community relations those of the Gaelic world just being one of many examples that's it just thought you might find it an
0: interesting example Matt that is interesting I don't think I knew about this uh, this type of uh, artifact
1: though of course even in our, our episodes we talked about sometimes the um, the gray line between uh, a bowl and a drinking vessel yeah uh, yeah so it, uh, there's there's a certain amount of overlap I think
0: yeah, what is a grail? You, you know, you watch Monty Python; it's a drinking cup, right? Mm-hmm, but uh, yeah. but isn't a grail originally? I mean, something like cauldron, or maybe in some context it does.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: All right. This next message is in response to a previous listener mail, where somebody wrote in about a traditional Mongolian dish and some interesting uh, methods of animal butchery and cookery. So this is from M. M says, Hi, Robert and Joe. A couple of weeks ago, somebody wrote about a traditional Mongolian dish where a goat's skull and hide is used as a sealed vessel for cooking other ingredients. And you asked about uh, other cuisine traditions that did something similar. Here in Colombia, we use that method to cook the traditional lechona, Spanish for suckling pig, although the modern version uses a full grown animal instead of a small one. It evolved from an older Spanish tradition that was basically an oven cooked spatchcocked piglet. To make lechona, the pig's meat, bones, and organs are removed while keeping the skin of the back and torso uh, with the head intact. The meat is cut in small pieces and stuffed back into the skin mixed with spices, onions, green peas, sometimes rice because it's cheap but sacrilegious according to the traditional recipe. And then you stitch the skin to seal everything inside, bathe it in orange juice, and cook the whole thing in a brick oven until the inside is done and has infused with the drippings from the skin's fat. And the outer layer is thin and crispy, similar to the skin in Peking Duck. A single lechona can feed a small army or an average Colombian family gathering, winky face emoji, uh, with each person getting a generous scoop of the stuffing along with a square of the thin, crispy skin. It's very, very good, despite some people finding the sight of a pig's head a bit grotesque and medieval. But let's not forget that you guys over there didn't just put the herbs and spices inside the Thanksgiving turkey. You used to put pretty much all of the things that are now served as side dishes inside the bird. So they would cook with it and mix with its own flavor. Today's practice of cooking the turkey on its own and the stuffings on the side came with the popularization of stovetop cooking and the appearance of some sanitary concerns in the 70s. Keep up the good work. Love the show. M in Columbia.
1: (laughs) That's that's good. That reminds me of something in um, Martin Wallen's book on squid. I talked to him on a recent episode of the show. Uh, he gets, talks a, a little bit about um, uh, ancient use of uh, culinary use of, of squid and how you would have it stuffed with, say, sheep's brains. At least according to one ancient recipe. Mm-hmm. But that later on is discussed that the, the the squid body is essentially the perfect. Um, the, the perfect thing to stuff anything into like it's just yeah. the perfect body cavity to make and it's like nature's ravioli i guess so nature's dumpling
0: or you think the the ocean's sausage casing you know yeah. it's, a, it's a tube like a like a sheep intestine or whatever
1: yeah but i'm i'm all for it. yes keep the the pig's head on uh it, it may it yes it could be a bit grotesque and a bit medieval but um uh, you know people need to know where their their pork's coming from look at look your uh your, your your feast in the face All right, this one comes to us from Ben. Ben writes in, hello, stuff to blow your mind, Peoples. I was so stoked to hear your last mailbag episode. I started typing this message before the episode was over. I have been following the progress of this game, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Shredder's Revenge, uh, (laughs) and uh, for over a year, and I'm well impressed. Uh, And from here, he goes into a number of details about uh, his excitement for the game, uh, his uh, experience with the game. Uh, Suffice to say, uh, he was very uh, excited and very impressed. Uh, But then he also mentions, Robert and Seth spoke of the other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle properties in the episode, and I would like to throw in another couple. The Last Ronin is a comic from IDW Publishing that is being released as a trade paperback next month and looks amazing. Also, check out the most recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon, Rise of the Teenage Mutant ninja turtles available via nickelodeon and paramount plus both are different takes on the franchise on very opposite points of the spectrum thank you for all the great content you make i'm glad i have stbym as quote friends in my ears keep up the great work (laughs) cowabunga dudes benjamin p.s i'm a raphael
0: (laughs) (laughs) wait does that mean if you're a raphael does that mean you're like moody and angry
1: Well, this is one thing Seth and I discussed. If you have to select a turtle to be in one of these games, Mm -hmm. uh, there's the discussion, does this say something about me? Uh, So Seth and I are both Donatello's. I don't know if you have a gut answer to which turtle you are or which one you would select.
0: I think I was also a Donatello, but I don't know if that's psychologically revealing. I think it was just because I regarded their weapons and thought that his bow staff had the longest reach, which was true in that really hard side-scrolling NES game.
1: Ah, well, it holds true in this game as well. He does have very long reach with it. Uh, My son, by the way, is a Raphael, so there Hmm. you go. Uh, the other thing I did look up this, this,
0: (laughs) yeah, I mean, (laughs) Raphael in their teenage years, you got to watch out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Raphael's
1: got some, some good moves in that game. Uh, this, the last Ronin I did look up and it does look kind of interesting. I think it's like a futuristic situation where there's only one turtle left, uh, kind of deal. And he's having to, you know, fight the powers that be and so forth.
0: That's interesting. So I wonder what Benjamin means here about saying the last Ronin and, and rise of the turtles are opposites. I assume he means like one is very dark, and one is more light and fun.
1: Yeah, I think one is still for the kids, and one is for the uh, more of the you know the, the, the I don't not necessarily the grown up audience, but you know the the edgier comic book content. I'm imagining, which I think that has roots back to some of the original uh, comic book stuff regarding the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
0: Are you ready? Could could you or maybe you and Seth take a stab at a couple of random Turtles questions that popped into my head? They're both about fashion in the t- yeah, Ninja yeah. Turtles. Okay. So the first one is, are Bebop and Rocksteady supposed to code as punks? Like Bebop's got the mohawk and the nose ring and the the fashion glasses. Is is he supposed to be a punk or is that just like eh, it's just random uh, stuff to to make him look cool? And if he is supposed to be a punk or if they're both supposed to be punks. Are they like, uh, are they into the music or did they be were they transformed into punks after being exposed to the ooze? Uh, could they have become surfers or goths? What's the, what's the origin on this here?
1: Well, Seth may have to chime in, but my recollection on this is that they were human beings that already belonged to these subcultures and then they got oozed and transformed. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe they were an actual rhino and an actual uh, pig of some sort.
0: Oh, okay. I think I'm going more with like the Ninja Turtles movie too, where you just start with regular animals and then they're transformed into human forms. But if they started as humans, that would make way more sense.
2: Okay. Here's what I know. Okay. Hello, everyone. It's Seth here. Um, So if you watch the animated series, now I know all of the series, whether it's the comics, the movies, the animated series, et cetera, they each have slightly different timelines. But picture those street punks. From Jason Takes Manhattan, okay? Okay. The ones yes. where it's like, gosh, isn't New York a dirty, filthy city? All these kids, we don't understand where they're coming from. They're wearing crazy fashions. What's with this? Yeah. If you see pictures of bebop and rock study before they mutate, that's exactly what they look like. Is those <laughs> okay. like filthy, you know, 1970s, 1980s street kids in New York. That that, that, that was a okay. very
0: Warriors-esque, you know? They are they are punk-slash-heavy metal criminals, as would appear in a movie made by people who don't really understand these music genres. Exactly.
2: They, they are mainstream <sighs> cultures, bastardizations of these subcultures. And, okay. and so, therefore, yes, they are punk. Yes, they are heavy metal. But only in the regard that, like, a 40-year-old man who is writing a <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) children's cartoon
0: show understands these concepts very good i've got a second question Mm -hmm. are you ready i'm ready if if, if robert's ready also about fashion in in ninja turtles can anyone explain why the reporter april o'neill has classically been depicted wearing an all yellow jumpsuit is that just random or is this an outfit associated with tv journalism in some context that i don't uh, that i'm not aware of
2: I have my interpretation. Uh, how, how about how about you, Robert? Do you do you have a word on this? I never really thought about it, <laughs> but uh, I mean, a, a good jumpsuit, a jumpsuit is a good look. So yeah. I, I just, just never bright
0: yellow. I mean, yeah. like super visible. I guess like you're not. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Here's here's always been my interpretation. I bet there's a real reason somewhere deep in like, you know, the, the the retconning of the Ninja Turtle world. I always figured it was to let us know as the audience that this is an action-oriented woman, that she is gonna get out mm. there and she's gonna run around, she's gonna do some stuff. And then in addition to that, this part is probably the childhood speculation. The only yellow clothes that I would see as a kid would be like a yellow, like rain suit. So I always assumed that she was like Basically, environment ready. She could run down into the sewers. Hmm. She could be out on a dirty street, and she could, you know, just, you know, just 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 stay dry,
0: mobile, you know, well protected, and in in this in this jumpsuit. I, I know what you mean. Actually, when I was a kid, I think the closest way I had of making sense of that was that it looked kind of like a radiation suit, right? Mm.
1: It does give her a like a sense of official belonging, like she's yeah you know it is almost like a uniform like i am supposed to be here i'm here on official business
0: i am a reporter Mm -hmm. well i think we should bring that back tvs tv journalists on the scene now full body yellow jumpsuit (laughs) okay thanks for your input seth rob do you want to tackle one more uh message here how about how about doing this one about weird house cinema
1: all right, this one comes to us from James. James says, hello again, gents. Uh, so, uh, I don't remember what James said last time, but now he's <laughs> saying stuff again. Um, I was excited to see you return to the expansive collection of classic horror flicks referenced by the Misfits on your recent episode of Weird House Cinema covering Fiend Without a Face. Well, that's all that James was was someone who wrote in about uh, the Misfits. Right. Uh, James continues, I immediately felt a sense of obligation to seek out a used VHS copy on eBay and re-listen to the podcast after viewing it. Apologies for my (laughs) late email about this topic. Shipping took a while. Overall, I thoroughly enjoyed both the movie and your hilarious in-depth analysis of the film. Those sound effects were truly something else, and I still ponder the Foley work used to produce the walking through the kicks cereal while slurping noodle soup monster sounds. (laughs) While the first two-thirds of the film did have me asking, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory, the climactic scenes at the end made the whole experience well worth it. The obviously dated, yet surprisingly good and gory stop-motion animation battles left. Me yearning for a video game adaptation of this sh- schlocky old gem.
0: Oh, that would be great!
1: Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. As long as you focused on, again, the last 13 minutes of the film. <laughs> I, don't, I guess you could do a role-playing sort of a thing with the rest of the movie, I guess.
0: You could, or I, I feel like it would be a great opportunity for one of those side-scroller movie adaptation video games that's full of things that are not in the movie at all. Like, so you'd play a guy jumping on platforms with a pistol and there's brains flying at you, but then there's like, I don't know, you know, clowns popping up out of trash cans to bite you or something. That's how all those, those movie games were they they had stuff that was never in the movie. Well, we know what the power up would be in the game, that's for sure. Oh, Benzadrine, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: you have to keep that, popping those Benzadrines in order to keep up with the brain monsters. Yeah. All right, well James continues. Uh, random Tangent. In a previous episode, one of you mentioned a friend's band doing a bluegrass cover of the Misfits Astro Zombies, and this song has coincidentally been a staple in my own solo acoustic open mic set for years. Wow. Smiley Face. I'll start working on Fiend Without a Face next. Perhaps I'll try to send a recording someday. As always, I'm really enjoying your pod and appreciate the diversity of topics and themes you cover. After the Ninja Turtles chat with Seth, I'll have to seek out that new beat 'em up game soon, too. Cheers. Cheers, James. Thank you, James. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close up the mailbag there, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, so right in. Uh, You can uh, find our listener Mail episodes on Mondays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh,
0: Yeah, so write in past episodes, current episodes, future episodes, anything's fair game. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. Uh, If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.